0: Traveling the Vortex, side trip. Again, This is Sean from Traveling the Vortex, and I'm coming to you now with Star Trek 102, my look into the Star Trek films. Well, uh, where we left off last time, we had finished our discussion on uh, Star Trek, the original series, and hopefully some of you have gone out and investigated that a little bit. I would be interested to know if you did, and now I'd like to talk a little bit about the Star Trek films. Now, as I touched on in my last podcast on this, um, Star Trek was going to be a second television series. Star Trek Phase 2. Paramount wrote scripts and commissioned uh, sets to be built and had costumes made. Everything was set and ready to go. The one notable exception was that Leonard Nimoy would not be returning as Mr. Spock. And somewhere along the line, the plans for the fourth network, UPN, or the United Paramount Network... Uh, just kind of uh, went off the rails, and it never wound up happening. As a result, there was no launch, and uh, with no network, no flagship, so Star Trek. So what to do? Well, Star Wars had just come out and made a boatload of money, and Paramount, not being one to turn a blind eye to that, said, well, we've got this other science fiction property we've already spent money on, and pushed into production Star Trek The Motion Picture. Now, the motion picture had a storied history right there, but uh, it continues with the fact that this is back in studio days when uh, movies were tentpoles for their summer budgets, and studios would often promise the theaters films in exchange for portions of the grosses. Well, Star Trek The Motion Picture was considered to be a big tentpole event, and as a result, it made it into theaters unfinished. If you've seen Star Trek The Motion Picture, you certainly know what I mean. If you've not seen Star Trek The Motion Picture, it's a very interesting experiment, and it's quite honestly a bit of a mess. The uh, movie takes place sometime after the series. Uh, I don't believe they've ever given a specific time frame, but it's many, many, many years later. Captain Kirk has now been promoted to Admiral, and he is in charge of a great many of things at uh, Starfleet Headquarters. The Enterprise has been refit and recommissioned. Uh, She's undergone a complete redesign. Bigger engines, all kinds of cosmetic changes to hallways and different bridge. And under a new captain, William Decker. Now, if you followed through with any of my suggestions from the previous Star Trek 101, I mentioned that the Doomsday Machine is my favorite episode of Star Trek of all time, which features a character by the name of Matt Decker. This is meant to be his son. And I think it's a little unfortunate in a way that we don't touch too much on that relationship. And I think it would have made a a little bit of an interesting character in Rose. Much of the movie uh, revolves around this entity that is approaching Earth, and it's vaporizing everything in its path. It's on a direct course for the planet. And somehow, naturally, in the grand scheme of Starfleet's infinite wisdom, the Enterprise is the only ship that can intercept the giant cloud before it reaches Earth. Admiral Kirk takes over the Enterprise because of his experience in dealing with the unknown. And in the words of McCoy, he kind of uses the emergency to ram getting his commission down Starfleet's throat. And get the enterprise back, which puts him at odds with with Mister Decker. Spock, meanwhile, Leonard Nimoy did return for the film. Is off on Vulcan, purging all of his uh, vestiges of emotion and getting ready to go into the colonar discipline, which would make him a being of pure logic. That he is going to be what is considered to be a true Vulcan. Now, Vulcans are misunderstood. It's not that they are emotionless. Vulcans have emotions. They just choose not to express them or to act on them. And I think that's a very common misconception from outside the fan base. Unfortunately, the consciousness of this entity calls out to him from across the stars, and he is touched by it and realizes there's something greater at work here than just a threat. He gives up on the discipline. Travels back to Earth, is reinstated at his Starfleet commission, and becomes science officer. And so now we have a complete crew ready to face the unknown. Unfortunately, what sounds like a great premise, and very much is in the vein of the Star Trek, the, the, the high browed thinking man Star Trek of the original series, devolves into a very long, plodding process of exploring this alien ship which it does turn out to be a ship, a massive ship that dwarfs the new Enterprise. And the way to do that is through visual effects, because, well, it worked in Star Trek. They, you know, in Star Wars, they gave us a, a, a big special effects movie. So let's do Star Trek as a big special effects movie. And quite honestly, it's boring. We spend a good amount of time watching the crew watch things unfold on the view screen, which is not exciting. Anybody can tell you that. And so we'll show something on the view screen, and then we'll show the crew's reaction shot. And then we'll show something on the view screen, and we'll show the crew's reaction shot. And it's back and forth, back and forth like this. Part of the problem stemmed from the fact that the film wasn't finished. Um, it was literally a wet edit print that was taken from Robert Wise, the director, while he was still working on it, because they had this tentpole date to meet. So it was finished as best it could. It did not have all of the visual effects completed. It did not have uh, many of the editing decisions yet to be made. And so it's kind of a first draft. There are things in that draft that I like very much, mainly from a technological standpoint. I, I enjoy the, the new ship and how automated it is. I think that's kind of an interesting advancement for the series. I enjoy some of the noises and, and, and things. It's, it's one of those fun movies that I used to pop in on a Sunday afternoon at the video store when I was working and kind of get people riled up because it was just familiar enough that they would go, I think I know what this is. It's Star Trek, isn't it? And yet still alien uh, in its presentation that nobody really got it. Uh, Quite honestly, a much better way to watch it is uh, the director's edition, which was uh, released on DVD and features many, many changes that um, Robert Wise lobbied for. And he basically wanted to finish the movie to his specifications, and Paramount agreed so they went back and re-edited the picture. Things happen in a slightly different order now, and it flows much better. It's still a tad too long. and still a tad too boring, but it's much, much improved from what it was. They added some visual effects sequences uh, to the middle and end of the movie, which greatly improve the flow of things there and, and the visual presentation of how it works. They changed some of those technical things that I liked from the original edition. Um, they, they went back to uh, Major Barrett Roddenberry, Gene Roddenberry's wife, who's played the voice of the Enterprise computer, basically since the inception of Star Trek, uh, and, and reinserted her as the voice of the computer, uh, changed some of the uh, you know, noises back to what you would expect classic Enterprise to sound like. And uh, it, it ties in, I think, a little bit better. For me, what's interesting is the motion picture, in many ways, you could tell, still had this Phase 2 series influence to it. It's very much a prototype for Star Trek The Next Generation. If you watch Star Trek The Next Generation, or if you've ever seen Star Trek The Next Generation, go back and watch Star Trek The Motion Picture, and what you'll see is a dry run. Roddenberry knew this is what he wanted for his utopian vision, and uh, there are very, very many similarities. We've got uh, William Riker, William Decker. We've got uh, the First Officer having a uh, former love affair with uh, an empath. We've got the newly designed ship, even the uh, octagonal-shaped hallways. Uh, kind of match, so there's there's very much influences of motion picture and next gen, but it's a good start. Um, what's interesting is that if any other movie had come out and cost as much as Star Trek the Motion Picture did, and then turn around and made as much as Star Trek the Motion Picture did, there probably wouldn't have been a sequel. But this is Star Trek, which is infamous for life after death, and so a couple years later, we get Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. Now, a lot of things changed. We've got a whole new producing team. Uh, Harv Bennett comes on board, and he promptly sits down and watches all of the episodes of the original series to familiarize himself with it. He knows the misstep they made with the motion picture was that it was far too effects-heavy and not enough story. He brings in a young man by the name of Nicholas Meyer to write and direct the sequel. They reunite the cast, no small mean feat, and present us with a sequel to the episode Space Seed. Now again, if you listen to Star Trek 101, Space Seed involves Khan Noonien-Sung, who is a genetically engineered Superman from Earth's past. The eugenics wars happened in the early 90s. Khan wound up ruling one-fourth of the Earth, and eventually humanity overthrew them and took over the planet again, and he escaped into space with 70-some-odd of his followers. Their life support systems were frozen, and they've been in a a state of deep hibernation until the Enterprise finds them in Space Seed. At the end of Space Seed, despite all the horrible things that Khan has done in this episode, Kirk recognizes in him the command drive, the flame of inspiration and leadership, and basically offers him a choice that he can go back to Earth for his crimes, or we can set you down on a deserted planet, and you can have a go of it. Obviously... Khan chooses to rule in hell. Star Trek 2 opens with a survey team landing on Seti Alpha 6 to look for a research site for a new scientific project called Genesis. And instead, on this barren wasteland, they find Khan, who explains that Seti Alpha 6 exploded six months after Kirk dropped them off. The shockwave shifted the orbit of the planet. They're not on Seti Alpha 6, they're on Seti Alpha 5. And everything on their planet was laid waste and that most of his followers are not dead, including his beloved wife, who was a member of Kirk's crew originally. And he has spent 15 years stewing about it. Ricardo Montalban returns as Khan in a fantastic performance, and he's very bent. Meanwhile, Captain Spock and the Enterprise is training a shipload of cadets, a bunch of new Starfleet recruits, and they get embroiled in this uh, battle uh, as Khan seeks his vengeance. He takes over the Reliant, the survey ship, and uh, launches an attack on the Enterprise. Things go downhill rather quickly for the crew from there. Wrath of Khan is regarded as the best of the Star Trek movies, and I heartily agree with that. However, it can be very slow-moving, especially for someone who's not seen it before. And I think the reason for that is Star Trek at its heart has always been submarine warfare. It's always been about exploration, but we're inside a ship. All the action happens from within the ship. And so you have to kind of understand that going into it, that you're watching a World War II-style submarine movie. And that's what Khan is. Khan has all of this wonderful plot and character development in the first half, which builds up to this dramatic confrontation in the second half, which is where your battle and your submarine warfare kick in. It was made for a, a, a pittance compared to the first film, but you can't really tell. The visual effects that they used are top-notch. Industrial Light and Magic came back into these, and it's got some of the best performances of the of the series, and notably Shatner. I know a lot of people will bag on Shatner for being kind of hammy and over-the-top, and there are certain moments of that, especially Khan. And if you've seen it, you know the reference I'm making, and if you haven't, I'm not going to ruin that for you. The, the thing that's always I've always found odd is that Shatner very much reminds me of John Wayne. If you watch John Wayne act, he's got this kind of stilted dialogue and larger-than-life persona in everything he's in. And I think Shatner very much follows suit with that, with his cadence and the way he pauses dramatically. In the middle of a line, John Wayne does the same thing. And yet John Wayne is regarded as this great American acting icon, and Shatner is regarded as a ham. I've never understood it, but there it is. Now, I'm going to sound the spoiler warning for anybody who has not seen these films, mainly because um, the end of Star Trek II pretty much directly ties into Star Trek III, and I cannot discuss Star Trek III without spoiling it. So, spoiler warning, if you've not seen this and don't want to be surprised... You might want to stop now. Okay. What makes Star Trek II the epitome of all Star Trek films is the ending. We get this great line about the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. We get this great sequence at the beginning of the film, the Kobayashi Maru test, which is designed to be unbeatable. The cadets are put through their paces in a no-win scenario. It doesn't matter what decisions you make as a commander. It doesn't matter how the action played out. You are going to lose your ship, you're going to lose your crew, and you're going to lose your life. That's a fairly harsh test. Kirk, of course, uh, doesn't believe in the no-win scenario, and it's later revealed in the film that he cheated. (laughs) It's the uh, the only cadet who ever beat it. Spock admits that he never took the test. At the end of Wrath of Khan, the Genesis device that has been the MacGuffin, really, of the uh, entire film, this uh, matter-energy transfer matrix, which can take a dead planet and reorganize all the matter on it into a living planet, has been set to overload. Khan's ship is crippled, as is the Enterprise. Both ships are drifting. The Enterprise is vainly trying to inch itself away, but it's going to get caught in this explosion, and everybody on it is going to die, and there's absolutely nothing they can do. The engine room is flooded with radiation. Scotty can't get in to fix the warp core. And Spock makes the decision that because he is not human, he can survive a higher dose of radiation, and it's logical that he should do so. He seals himself in the room, repairs the ship, and just in the nick of time, Enterprise warps out of the explosive radius at the cost of Spock's life. There's a touching last scene with Kirk and Spock, separated by the glass of the reactor chamber, sharing last words, and Spock dies. His body is loaded into a photon tube, and with great pomp and circumstance and ceremony, he is shot out onto the newly formed Genesis planet for his eternal rest. Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, came out two years later and picks up right where we left off, literally with a recap of the events of Reth Khan. So if it wasn't heart-wrenching enough to live through Spock's death, we have to do it again. But we realize Spock mind-melded with Dr. McCoy before going into the chamber, speaking a very cryptic, Remember. McCoy, on the way back to Earth, begins to exhibit some psychotic behavior, speaking in Spock's voice, bemoaning, Why did you leave me behind? Why did you leave me on Genesis? Which nobody can understand. It turns out that Spock has placed his essence, his katra, his mind, in Dr. McCoy. Under the belief that he could possibly be resurrected. Dun-dun-dun! The Genesis effect that formed this new planet also managed to regenerate Captain Spock's body. Now, there's a Klingon that's bent on uh, dominating the Federation and some uh, Starfleet politics that get in the way... But eventually we get to the point of Kirk and his ragtag crew stealing the Enterprise from Starfleet in an effort to reunite Spock's mind and body. It's beautifully done. It's a little far-fetched, but this is science fiction. Anytime anybody dies, there's always a possibility that they can come back. And it's a trope now, but it's a trope because of Star Trek, because of Wrath of Khan. The idea that you can kill a main character and yet somehow bring them back has now become a very integral part of this. Our Doctor Who fans, you know, know very well. If you don't like that, well, blame Star Trek, because this is where it came from. Uh, Unless it's a Joss Whedon, in which case all bets are off. At the end of Star Trek III, mind and body are refused, and he's not quite the same Vulcan we remember, but he's getting there. Which opens Star Trek IV. Now, these three films, Star Trek II, III, and IV, form a loose trilogy, regarding the events of the Genesis device and Spock's death and rebirth. The film opens with the announcement that uh, we're going to go back to Earth and face consequences for it. On the way back, they intercept a transmission from Earth. A probe has entered Earth orbit and is vaporizing the planet's oceans. It is sucking all power from every ship and base station on the planet, and it's emitting a signal that they can't seem to interpret Spock figures out that it is the song of humpback whales. And the probe is broadcasting this message to the planet, trying to figure out where the whales have gone. There aren't any to reply. They've been extinct. So they come up with a crazy plan of going back in time, picking up a couple of humpback whales, bringing them forward in time, dropping them off and hoping they tell the probe what to go do with itself, in the words of Dr. McCoy. But that's essentially the plot of Star Trek IV. Star Trek IV is the most fun of the Star Trek films. It very much harkens back to the tap dancing, if you will, uh, that many of the lighter episodes of the series portrayed. And I think it's a a much needed change of tone, especially after the events of Wrath of Khan and Search for Spock, which are a little bit darker and more ominous. It's uh, filled with humor and some unexpected moments, and it is... The highest grossing of the original series films. Interesting to note that both Star Trek 3 and 4 were directed by Leonard Nimoy. Star Trek 4, again, was written by Ecklos Meyer. It's a good story, and it's an important theme, and it kind of gets back to what Star Trek had lost with these big budget space battles and, and giant clouds that uh, you know, it was about exploration, about those weighty issues, and about social events. And certainly, the Ecology of the Planet is one of those. I cannot recommend it enough. It's a little dated now, and you need to watch it on the heels of the other two in order for it to make perfect sense, because there are a lot of missing Star Trek tropes from this. But it's definitely uh, among the best of the series. Now comes Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Five was directed by William Shatner, with a story by William Shatner. And a lot of fans will tell you that that's the problem. And I disagree. I think Star Trek V has got an interesting idea at its core. And the execution came across a bit poorly. Star Trek V has the idea of a Vulcan who happens to be Spock's half-brother. Who relishes emotion and thinks the way of logic is uh, just simply crazy and that's a fallacy. And he is in search of Eden or Valhalla. The place where all life in the universe sprang from. He's looking for God. This is a weighty issue, and it's not necessarily the easiest idea to capture that. His idea is to capture a starship which will take him through the Great Barrier, at the center of the galaxy, where he believes this planet to be. The Enterprise, of course, fits the bill, and we go on this uh, adventure. Star Trek V was another film that was never finished quite properly. It suffered from a writer's strike, and it suffered from first-time director William Shatner, who is competent enough in his directing, but I don't think had quite the idea of the scale of what one of these films requires when he went into it. Unfortunately, Paramount decided that they would not issue the same revamp to Star Trek V as they offered Robert Wise with Star Trek Motion Picture, and thus no director's cut exists of this particular film. I think it's a pity, because I'd be curious to see what they could do with it. This brings us to Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Again, written and directed by Nicholas Meyer. Again, dealing with weighty social issues. Arguably, one of the best in the series. It deals with prejudice. It's a fantastic Klingon story. Uh, The Klingons have a moon, Praxis, which explodes in the opening sequence. Nearly wiping out Captain Sulu, who's been promoted in his own right, and the USS Excelsior. And they simply cannot afford the environmental and ecological damage that the moon's demise means for the empire. They cannot maintain the buildup of military equipment. Now the Klingons have very much always been the Russians in the Star Trek allegory. Um, When the original series debuted in the sixties, there was this great fear still uh, of communism carrying over and, you know, things like the Cuban missile crisis were still fresh in everybody's memory. And so, the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union extended into Star Trek in the, between the Federation and the Klingon Empire. And much like the conflicts of events of Chernobyl and Berlin Wall coming down, that's very much what, what this is an allegory for. These same events basically happen in Star Trek VI. And they're uh, on their way to engineering a great new piece when Starfleet officers beam onto the bridge of the ship and assassinate the Klingon Chancellor. As captain, Kirk is forced to take the blame. It's believed that he did it, and he and McCoy are sentenced to a prison planetoid in deep in the Klingon Empire for life. This is the meat of the story, and I won't spoil what happens, but I think it's a good one. I had planned to kind of continue going into the further uh, next-gen movies, but instead I'm going to skip ahead and talk about J.J. Abrams' Star Trek. Because they're closer in theme, I think, to the original series. Obviously, that's where we're at. We're still dealing with Kirk and Spock. Now, Star Trek, the 2009 version, was a reboot in some ways. I think they did a genius idea of incorporating some time travel... And then explaining that the result of that time travel had now splintered and changed the sequence of events from what we were familiar with into an alternate universe. That's the keystone for the new Star Trek for me, because what it says is that it's not a reboot. It's flat out giving you permission to enjoy everything that has come before, but know that we're going to move in a different direction now. And that was, that was a stroke of genius, because it didn't polarize fans. It didn't take away everything that they loved about it. It didn't invalidate any of it. It allowed it to be still its own thing. So the Shattered Nimoy, Spock, and Kirk still happened. It just happened in a slightly different parallel universe. Star Trek opens with a character study of James Kirk and Spock from a young age. The events that fold them and mold them into the people they are and this vengeful Romulan named Nero, who is hunting Spock. But he's actually hunting Spock Prime. He's hunting the Leonard Nimoy Spock, because of something that happens in the existing universe. They wind up time-traveling back into the past, and creating an alternate timeline, where we get to revisit things, such as Kirk's days at the Academy, him beating the Kobayashi Maru. And yet things are still slightly different, slightly amiss, if you will, from the original established history. Star Trek is a fun movie. The 2009 is big and grand and epic, and it very much is done in the spirit of the original series. And as Kirk and Spock, this time played by Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto, begin to feel each other out and get to know each other, despite their bickering and and arguing, you can see that this is a relationship that is going to have lasting ramifications for both men. It does what I honestly thought may have been impossible. It takes Star Trek down and dusts it off and pumps it full of adrenaline and turns it loose. And it is fantastic. The entire new cast is wonderful. These people embody these roles, not necessarily doing caricatures of any of the performances, but simply by putting a new spin on them and still managing to do it. Um, Most notably is Carl Urban, who plays Dr. McCoy, and nails DeForest Kelly's persona, his mannerism, his speech, his dialect. Everything he says sounds like something Dr. McCoy would say. Zachary Quinto makes a great spot, and Chris Pine makes... A fantastic Kirk, and I cannot say enough good about Star Trek. Now, again, sounding the spoiler warning for Star Trek Into Darkness, which just came out. We talked pretty extensively about this on the podcast, so you probably, if you've listened to us, you know most of the plot thread. There's a villain, and he is hunting down Starfleet, and the Enterprise is sent on a retrieval mission to go get him. Uh, he's been hiding out on the Klingon in, in, within the Klingon space. And we're not going to get him and retrieve him. We're going to go get him and kill him. This is a, 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 a flat-out manhunt. Kind of, uh, you know, in the vein of uh, Saddam Hussein or or Bin Laden. And in many ways, that's the problem. It's a darker story that doesn't really fit the idea of Star Trek. Now, it's important to note that that plot does play out. There's a reason for it to do it the way that they did. But it, it just feels a little wrong. And I think... It's a misstep, especially in light of other movies that have come out of late, including Iron Man 3 this summer, also from Paramount, <laughs> because it's almost saying, hey, you could go see this movie about a terrorist who's, uh, who's threatening everything, and, and Tony Stark and Iron Man are going to show up and stop it, or you could come see the Star Trek movie about a terrorist who's threatening everything, and Kirk and company are going to stop it. Not an original idea. And they try very hard to kind of mold it into an original idea by placing it within the trappings of Star Trek. And it just doesn't work, which is rather unfortunate. Specifically, and again, spoilers if you haven't seen it and don't want to know, we revamp Khan. And he's uh, originally starts off as a character named John Harrison. He's played by Benedict Cumberbatch from Sherlock fame, which is a complete mismatch. Benedict is a wonderful actor, and I mean no begrudging disrespect to him in that capacity, but he's not Khan. And part of that may be the fanboy in me who is a little upset that, you know, Khan is hollow ground because it is such an iconic piece of this original series. And there's no reason to retread over it. At the same time, I I know that this is a, a revamped universe and that, you know, all bets are off. But I would still like to have seen something original with this revamp instead of let's continue to rehash things that we've already done. And so I think it was a calculated misstep. Now, having said that, is it still an enjoyable film? Yes, absolutely. It is a fantastic summer blockbuster. It's a great action flick and it's a lot of fun to watch, even though it's a little darker in tone. It just doesn't feel like Star Trek to me. It doesn't feel like the Star Trek that I expected after the first film. It doesn't feel like the Star Trek that I was wanting after the first film after the revamp. now, what's interesting within the confines of the Star Trek movie universe is there's the curse. I can't talk about the movies without talking about the curse. Star Trek fans have brought up the idea of the odd numbered curse that for whatever reason the odd numbered Star Trek films just simply aren't as good and If you go back and look, we've got Star Trek the Motion Picture, which we i you know is kind of bloated and overlong. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, is fantastic. Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, a lot of people say, ah, it's not as good. Well, okay. In my mind, there's really nothing wrong with Star Trek Three, except for the fact that it followed Star Trek II. And when you have something that is that good, it's a little difficult to come back from it. It's kind of like The Dark Knight Rises. It's not a bad film, but it's not as good as The Dark Knight. And that's where people, I think, are making that, that conception that the odd-numbered film's are bad. Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home, was a good one, The Whales. Star Trek V, Final Frontier, was not. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, was. So as you can see, we've got 1, 3, and 5, not so much. 2, 4, and 6, fantastic. The next-gen movies follow that pattern, with 7 being a little not so much, 8 being phenomenal, 9 I still enjoy, although I understand, again, fans, not so much, and I think 10 is enjoyable. So now we get the new Star Trek, which basically is film 11 in this continuity. But it completely flips everything around on its ear. But if you, continue, if you count it as its own separate continuity, maybe they've reversed the curse, and now the odd-numbered films will be good, and the even-numbered ones, not so much. It's an interesting idea. But in the words of Philip J. Fry, Hey, do you know what six movies averaged out to be pretty good? The original star trek films and that's kind of where we're at they average out to be pretty good these are not life-altering movies with the possible exception of wrath of Khan, and i doubt very much that any of you are going to come away going oh my god that one should have won an oscar but if you enjoy star trek i definitely think they are needed pieces of the continuity i thank you for joining me for this look i apologize for running long. Uh, I'm going to hold off on my review of the Star Trek The Next Generation films until after we do Star Trek The Next Generation, which could be a while. One further item of note, now that everybody has Blu-ray players, there is a box set, Star Trek The Original Motion Picture Collection, available on Blu-ray, that includes all six films and a fantastic documentary. Unfortunately, it's all six theatrical cuts of these films. So, buyer beware, if you're looking for the director's cut of Wrath of Khan or the director's edition of Star Trek The Motion Picture, they have not yet been issued on Blu-ray. It's an important designation to note. As always, we look forward to hearing from you. You can uh, send us feedback to feedback at TravelingTheVortex.com, which is our Doctor Who podcast. You can find us online at TravelingTheVortex.com. Again, Doctor Who, not Star Trek, but things tend to bleed over as our tangential listeners can appreciate in the test. If you're wanting to send me some feedback if there the things that you agree with or disagree with on uh, my look at these films, you can send them to Sean S-H-A-U-N at Traveling the Vortex. You can send them to me on Twitter, which is at VortexSean on Twitter. And of course we're on Facebook and a multitude of other sites as well. So I very much look forward to hearing from you seeing what your reactions to this are and I hope that you've enjoyed it once again, for Traveling the Vortex this is Sean signing off